0: Okay, tonight we have a guest preacher. We very rarely have a guest speaker, but uh, this is going to be a real treat. We have Dr. Theon Hill all the way from Illinois with us. He is a professor at Wheaton College, University at Wheaton College. Yeah, which is like the Harvard of Christian colleges, I've heard from Doug. Doug went to Wheaton. (laughs) He, He stepped away. He felt embarrassed. Uh, it's a really good school. I, I actually, this is, today was the first time I actually met Dr. Hill, but I've read some of his writings and heard some of his sermons. So be prepared, like to hear the word of God proclaimed boldly. Um, yeah, I think that's going to be, come on up. Greet Dr. Hill, Dr. Theon, Theon, Reverend Dr. Theon Hill. Okay. Let's pray for him father we stretch out your hand if you're willing father we thank you for this vessel we thank you for this man of god would you uh empower him to preach your word with boldness and with authority and with clarity god i pray that he would be obedient to what you would have him to say and that he would yield to your spirit god i pray for us that the words of that the seeds of your word would fall on good ground on good soil oh god uh turning back an ab- abundance of fruits, kingdom fruit, God. Lord, we praise you. We give you thanks, honor, and glory. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen. Amen. Greet Theon one more time.
1: Thank you to my dear sister, Reverend Rose. I appreciate that. (laughs) To my host, uh, Elder Ramesh, back there. Uh, So many others. I'm going to forget someone, so I'm not going to go on any further. But good afternoon, East End Fellowship. I can truly say it is a blessing to be with you all, and my soul has already been refreshed. I bring you all greetings from my family and various ministry partners back in Chicago. And I am just thrilled to be able to spend this time with you this afternoon. On May 31st, Netflix released a four-part series titled, When They See Us. The four-part story revisits the story of the Central Park Five. If you're unfamiliar with the story five African-American teenagers were falsely accused and convicted for the sexual assault of a female jogger in New York's Central Park in 1989, despite limited evidence and inconsistent testimony supporting the charges against them. Only when forensic evidence exonerated them and the true offender made a full confession where they released from prison and granted a $40 million settlement from the city of New York. This story speaks to the legacy of justice deferred and denied. The inequalities that persist within our criminal justice system and the ways in which certain lives are valued more than others. These realities often overwhelm us. I remember my freshman year of college, there were five African American classmates of mine who all dropped out within the first two weeks. They didn't drop out because they couldn't cut it academically. They didn't drop out because of finances. They couldn't, they, they dropped out because they couldn't handle the racism that dominates the higher education system so often. You see, these realities often overwhelm us. They plunge us into despair and depression, and they cause us to doubt the goodness of God. But this afternoon, I want us to understand that even in moments where racial oppression seems to be overwhelming, we can still turn to a God who is our mighty fortress. As I consider this theme for our time together this morning... I can remember exactly where I was the first time someone called me the N-word at the age of eight. I remember back to junior high when someone told me that they didn't find people who looked like me to be attractive. I remember the first time that a person dismissed my opinion by telling me that I should just go back to Africa. I remember the first time that someone questioned my ability to succeed academically because black people aren't that smart. I remember the first time a law enforcement official withdrew his weapon on me due to a case of mistaken identity. I remember the multiple times that I've had police called on me because someone deemed my presence as a black man to be suspicious. I remember all the times that someone touched my hair, my chest, or my skin because they exoticized my black body as a product to consume. What I'm trying to tell you is that the topic of racial persecution is not just an abstract conversation to be limited to social media platforms or viewing platforms or any kind of book. But this is something that's real. And it's something that's deeply personal to many of us. I see too many people dying physical, emotional, psychological and social deaths as they try to carry the unrelenting burden of racism. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, far too many of us are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Like W.E.B. Du Bois, many of us are wrestling with the question, how does it feel to be a problem? Like Toni Morrison's memorable character, Sethy in Beloved, many of us live suspended between the nastiness of life and the meanness of death. I want to know this afternoon, who is our God? In the midst of racial persecution. Now, keep in mind, you might not have experienced racial persecution. That is not a permission to turn your ears off. Whether you dealt with racial persecution or some other persecution, this message is relevant to you. I think of Lorraine Hansberry's classic book, uh, A Raisin in the Sun. It's a story all about racial persecution in Chicago, but that story has been translated into over 39 languages around the world. Why has it been translated despite the fact that it's a very specific topic? Hansberry answered that question. She said, many people learn to see the universal through the local. So if this is not an experience that you've dealt with, maybe it will speak to an area we're experiencing, persecution. As a descendant of slaves... I often find myself what it would have been like to experience the daily horrors of American slavery with the constant threat of physical violence, sexual assault, psychological trauma, or family separation. My ancestors experienced the contradictions of American society in profound ways. They lived in a nation that told them that they were closer to animals than humans yet this same nation felt the need to make laws forbidding slaves from learning to read. They lived in a nation that viewed their artistic and musical sensibilities as less refined, less developed, and less significant than the European tradition, even as the slaves' music was stolen, repackaged, and commodified for the majority culture. The nation told the slave that her black skin, wide nose, and full lips were less beautiful, less desirable than her white counterpart even as her master made her a charter member of the Me Too movement. On a daily basis, the slave faced the hypocrisy of American society, yet still found a reason to sing. When the prospect of deliverance from slavery seemed bleak, the slave sung, Didn't my lord deliver Daniel? Why not everybody? When the taskmaster beat the slave within an inch of her life, she quietly hummed, Go down, Moses. When the child was sold away from her parents and felt like she had no hope for tomorrow, she comforted herself by singing, A City Called Heaven. You see, the slaves demonstrated the unique ability to subvert the power of white supremacy with their divine perspective. As the blues singer Ma Rainey explained, You don't sing to feel better. You sing because that's a way of understanding life. In spirituals like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, the slaves left us a divine roadmap to refuge from the devastating effects of racial persecution. They recognized something in God that enabled them to see beyond the immediacy of their suffering to an eternal deliverance in God. This afternoon, I want us to question, what was it that the slaves knew about God that enabled them to endure persecution without giving up? Psalm 94 offers us a cue as to what the slaves knew, and I'd invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles, Psalm chapter 94, verses 12 through 23. Psalm 94, verses 12 through 23. All right, I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 23. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord God will wipe them out. And may God add the blessing to the reading of His Word. There's one point that I want to make this morning, and I'm going to expand on that in a few ways. Here's my primary argument. Our vision of God determines our fortitude in the midst of suffering. Our vision of God determines our fortitude In the face of suffering. When you read Psalm 94 here, the psalmist is writing with a sense of anticipation. The psalmist is still dealing with some really incredibly difficult circumstances. Nothing has changed yet, but what the psalmist has is a vision of God. A vision of a God who parted the Red Sea. A vision of a God who tore down the walls of Jericho. A vision of God who enabled David to kill Goliath. The psalmist had a vision of God that gave them courage in the midst of difficult times. And as we think about it, what did this writer see about God? First thing I think we see is that the writer saw, the psalmist saw that they served a God who protects his people. God protects his people. All right, Richmond, can I share with y'all a quick story? All right. So growing up, I loved playing sports. Like if I was going to do a talent, I was, if I was going to be here for the variety show, my variety or talent would be basketball, you know. But we're going to talk, we ain't going to talk about that today. Uh, but growing up, I played baseball and a variety of sports. One night, my team was in the championship. And we were really excited. Like we were we were going in. We were trying to, you know, come out on top, but we got down. And as was true, whenever I was trying to mobilize my team, I like to talk a little bit of stuff. So I get on the diamond. I'm up to bat and I start talking stuff. Well, you know, usually when you're talking trash on the diamond, it's kind of you and the opposing players. Well, the opposing coach decided to get in on the act. He started saying some really nasty things about me so that everyone could hear. Now, if you play baseball at all, you know, when you're up to bat, you're kind of isolated from everyone else. You're the only offensive player on the diamond. So what this coach was trying to do is make me feel isolated from everyone else so that I would feel lonely and I would have no support up there. But you see, this coach didn't realize something. This coach didn't realize that I had a father in the stands. And you see, my dad is West Side of Chicago, born and bred Fulton and Holman, and he don't play. Now, my my father had just come from work. He was a criminal defense attorney for 35 years. He had just come from work. He was in a three-piece suit, but someone was making fun of his son. So this man, my dad, being the crazy Negro that he is, runs on the diamond in a three-piece suit, tries to jump on the coach, saying a lot of words that I can't repeat right now. Why? Because he wanted that coach to know You ain't going to mess with my son. Now, follow me. The coach thought I was by myself. The coach didn't realize that I had someone in the stands looking out for my welfare. Sometimes in the game of life, you can feel all alone. You can feel like you ain't got no one to support you. You can feel alienated and isolated in the midst of forms of oppression. But don't forget, you got a God watching out for you. And let me tell you, this God cared about you so much. This God cared about you so much that Jesus Christ came to earth to die for your sins. Tell me, how can we trust Jesus for our need for eternal salvation, but we can't trust him for our daily need of protection? It's kind of like what Zora Neely Hurston says in her classic book. They looked as though they were staring into the dark, but their eyes were watching God. Because even in the midst of tragedy, we know that our God is still protecting us. That's what the psalmist is writing about right here. It's difficult, but I know my God got my back. I know my God is not going to leave me alone. I know my God will run on a field and get violent if he has to in order to protect me. That's the God that we serve. So we can be confident today, no matter what we're dealing with. But it's not just that the psalmist anticipated a God who protects us the psalmist also anticipated a God who comforts us. A God who comforts us. It's not just that God kind of leaves us out there, but God is that person in the middle of the night when you're suffering who will calm your soul, who will bring a word that allows you to sleep at night, who will help you deal with all the psychological trauma that forms of oppression face. And I think one of the things that most comforts us about God is we know from scripture that our God sees us in our suffering. One of the things I tell my students all the time at Wheaton College, the worst thing in life is not someone hating me. The worst thing in life is someone not seeing me. It's the apathy toward my existence that's the most difficult reality to face. And you know, scripture tells us about a sister who was facing this very reality. Her name was Hagar. Hagar was dealing with some really difficult stuff, if you understand her story in Genesis 16. She did not have a choice over having a child with her master. When she had the child by her master, the master's wife decided that he wasn't happy, she wasn't happy that she had had a child by her master. It got so bad that Hagar had to flee, and she ran to the desert. It was so bad for her in the desert. She was sure that she and her child were going to die. She just said, Lord, please don't let me see the death of the child. Let me go first. And in that moment, what, does, what happens? We see the angel of God coming out of nowhere. And the angel says, lift up your eyes. Don't put your eyes down. Lift up your eyes. Look, and what happens? God gives her a vision of a grove with some water. He's like, I still got you, and I'm going to comfort you. But I think it's interesting. When Hagar names her son, she named him Ishmael. Why did she name him Ishmael? If you look up the meaning of the word Ishmael, it means thou, God, seest me. God saw her in the midst of her suffering. What does that mean? If God sees me, that means I'm not alone. That means I got someone there with me. So anytime you face oppression, anytime you face persecution, anytime people make you feel like you're less than understand, you are not experiencing that alone. There is someone with you who sees you. And third, God doesn't just uh, protect us. God does not just comfort us. But we serve a God who judges sin. When we think of the legacy of racial discrimination, we're talking about four and five hundred years. I mean, it's so difficult here in America that even to talk about equality feels like inequality because we're so accustomed to sin. We're so adjusted to injustice that justice feels wrong. We can't even recognize it when we see it. And that's really difficult when we're talking about these realities. I think Dr. King said this in his 1967 book, Where Do We Go From Here? He's like, I realized as we went through the civil rights movement, when we say equality, we're talking about very different things. We're not talking about the same reality. And it's hard when you look at society today. When you look at who's prospering and who's languishing. There was a report that just came out from Chicago, where I'm from. If you live on the north side, the affluent part of Chicago, your life expectancy is about 90, 90 years old. If you live on the south side, it's about 60 years old. It's hard when you see those things to think, is God even paying attention to this stuff? Does God see what's happening in our nation? Does God see what's happening on how we treat people? Does Jesus care? But one of the things that this psalmist says is, God sees the wicked. The only thing that gets me up in the morning is I know that God will punish wrongdoing. The only thing that gives me comfort is the fact that I know God will not let sin go unpunished. I know that the wages of sin are still death. That doesn't mean I want anyone's downfall. I pray for everybody, but I know that my God does not let sin go unpunished. And I know that my God is going to wipe away every tear. So that means as we face these things, someone may be hurting you. Someone may be attacking you, but don't think that God is going to allow them to get off. You may not be there to see it. You may not understand what's going to happen, but God, 100% of the time, punishes sin. Now, why is this so important as we think about this psalm? What he says at the very end. He says in verse 23, he says, he will bring back on them their iniquity and he will wipe out their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Now, I'm going to remind you, the writer's situation has not changed. The tragedy has not been resolved, but the writer's disposition has fundamentally changed because the writer can now see beyond the immediacy of the situation to the eternality of God. Now, the fact that the writer can see beyond what's happening in the minute, that does not mean that we should ignore what's happening in the present for some blind allegiance to heaven. I think Dr. King was right when he said, it's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, and the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what God's preacher is responsible to do. You see, our vision of God is not an excuse to do nothing, it's a call to action. It's because my God protects, it's because my God comforts, it's because my God will judge sin that we have to be out there being a testimony to the truth of God's word. Because I know that God cares for humanity, I press on I press on living for my Savior in the face of injustice, discrimination, and hatred. Wherever injustice exists, the church should be there representing the values, as Mahalia Jackson would say, of this city called heaven. Where neither injustice, nor discrimination, nor hatred are are tolerated. When I think about our responsibility in this racially divided moment, I think of a, a good movie trailer. Back in... December, I was really excited when I saw this movie trailer pop up for this movie called Avengers Endgame. You might have heard of it once or twice. (laughs) When this movie trailer came out, the internet shut down for a few seconds. It was going to be the culmination of 22 movies, unlike anything we had seen in cinematic history. But you see, the movie trailer was not the movie. The movie trailer was just an appetizer for what was going to be in the movie. Brothers and sisters, that's what the church should be. We are not heaven, but we are an appetizer for what heaven looks like. When people come in our midst, they don't experience discrimination. They should not experience hatred. They should not experience injustice. Because although we may not be able to control what happens on the street, we can control what happens in God's house. So we ought to be out there supporting our brothers and sisters who are refugees. We need to be concerned with the undocumented immigrants who are fleeing horrible situations in places like Honduras and El Salvador. We need to be concerned with our brothers and sisters wrestling with the violent opioid epidemic in Appalachia. We need to be concerned with our brothers and sisters from Asian American communities who are wrestling with model minority myths. We need to be concerned with Native Americans who are in their land continually robbed of them. We need to be concerned for all people because God made us in his image and our lives have intrinsic value for that very reason. Brothers and sisters, let us not be discouraged in the face of racial tensions and other forms of injustice that persist in our society. Let it not cause us to fall prey to despair and depression as a contemporary poet named, uh, named Jermaine Lamar Cole, better known to you as Jay Cole, said, there's beauty in the struggle. And because there's beauty in the struggle, even as we look at our society and see racial tensions at the highest levels that they've been in 27 years, we can still lift our voices and sing. Because we anticipate a day... Uh, We can lift our voices and sing, till earth and heaven ring. We anticipate a day in which they will ring with the harmonies of liberty. We're going to let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. We want to let it resound as the rolling sea. And we're going to sing a song full of faith that the dark past has taught us. We're going to sing a song full of hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of each new day that's begun, we march on as believers till victory is run. So let us sing on like the slaves who came before us, knowing that our music is not simply a drug to give us a quick fix, but a spiritually grounded practice of reorienting our perspective in harmony with the truth of God's word. And that truth is that we have a God who will protect us as we walk through the fire. We have a God who will comfort us when we feel depressed. We have a God who will judge the sins of those who seem like they're getting away with crimes. May God bless us as we seek to preserve a divine perspective in the midst of a world who acts like God is not the righteous judge. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you at a very difficult moment in our nation's history. Perhaps more than at any point in my life, I see people leaving the church, I see people being overwhelmed with depression. And I see people suffering all forms of social death because of this vicious, vicious, scourge of racism, but Lord, we know that you are our mighty fortress who will comfort us in the midst of all of it. When we feel overwhelmed, help us to run to you and help us to find the grace to help that you promised all of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hill, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that our God is a refuge, that our God is a fortress. This next song that we're going to sing just simply talks about the faithfulness of God through whatever season, through whatever we see in our nation or Just God is completely faithful. God is still enthroned. God still cares for us. God still sees us. God is still fighting for us. Great is his faithfulness in all the earth. Would you please rise with us for our last couple songs?
2: Deceit and on God they don't rely. Though they nurture enmity, the sun will always rise. Though the streets are stained with blood and justice is denied. Though we suffer many floods, the sun will always rise. You are consistent, Lord, in all your ways. We said, I hope in you, you never change. Oh, how great is your faithfulness! Your faithfulness, oh, how great is your faithfulness! Great is your faithfulness! Oh, how great is your faithfulness! Great is your faithfulness! Oh, how great is your faithfulness! Great is your faithfulness! Though the iron fish just and hatred satisfied though the darkness chokes the day the sun will always rise though the way of peace is lost and aggression multiplied those nations turn and toss the sun will always rise you are consistent lord in all your ways we say, i hope on you you never change oh how great Great is your faithfulness, great is your faithfulness, oh how great is your faithfulness, great is your faithfulness. Praise you, Lord, for your faithful love, for
0: your faithful keeping love. Praise you, Lord. All right, everybody, we're about to dismiss. I'm going to dismiss us, but before you leave, um, put your chair, maybe plus another one on a rack. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sweet communion of his Holy Spirit, rest, rule, and abide with you now and forevermore. And let all God's people say, amen. Go in peace, y'all.